Hey, New Life Gillette Church, we are thrilled you decided to listen to our teaching on your favorite podcast app. If you made a decision to follow Christ today, would you let us know by visiting yes.newlifegillette.com? Here is this week's teaching. Good morning. Uh, hey, let me say welcome to Church 307, uh, to our friends over at the prison and at the jail. And those of you who are here in the room, I got a question for you. What are you thinking about? What's on your mind? And like, I'm not thinking about anything. I lost an hour of sleep. Does anybody in the room think that you're in the first service? No, this is the second service. Well, uh, welcome. Maybe you're thinking, I want to go fill out my March Madness bracket, but you got to wait till tonight, but that's going to happen. Invite me to your group, uh, Rock Chuck Jayhawk. Whatever you're thinking about, my invitation to you today is to set your mind on things above, to allow the Holy Spirit today to speak to you, whatever he has to say, whether it's something that's going to come out of my mouth or whether it's idea, an idea that he brings to you or it's something that you see in the passage that I don't even talk about, my hope is that today God will speak to you and it will change you, that it will affect you, that it'll make a difference in your life. Today we're talking about a strange story from the life of Jesus, and this story is kind of like a wake-up call in Jesus's time. I mean, when, when people do things out of the ordinary, people take notice, and Jesus did something very out of the ordinary, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So the year is 1981, and my family, this is three years before I was born, and uh, so I was not around, but the rest of my family was driving from Mulvane, Kansas to Derby, Kansas on Kansas Highway 15. It's a two-lane highway. They're driving in this thing. Ain't that a beaut? Mm, 1972 Ford station wagon with paneling. Mm, yeah. Stick on wood. That's what we all need on our cars today. It needs to come back. They had jam-packed 10 people in this car because they were taking a bunch of little girls to my sister's birthday party. And so on the way to this birthday party, uh, you got my brother Billy sitting in between my parents in the front seat. Remember the bench seats? And then my next oldest sister, Rebecca, is sitting in the middle seat with all of her friends. And then in the back seat... Remember that back seat that faced backwards? Anybody remember that? Anybody around? Yeah? Uh, you just stare down the person driving behind you the whole time you're driving? My oldest sister is in that back seat with her friends on their way to this party, and nobody is wearing a seatbelt. Nope. Nobody. Which is totally fine. Until a drunk driver comes barreling toward them in their lane and hits them head on. This is a very intense, uh, just happy birthday, Gina. <laughs> no, it was a bad birthday. Uh, blood everywhere, all kinds of injuries. A lot of them lost their teeth, and Billy ends up with an engine in his lap. My dad finally 
gets out of the vehicle. He's trying to help my mom out. And she's such a mangled mess that he passes out when he sees her. And one of my sister's friends is walking down the middle of the highway with a concussion, has no idea what's going on or where she is. Like horrible, horrible scene. And you will look at all this from an outsider perspective and you're like, you deserved it. You weren't wearing seatbelts, right? This is the way we think. But back then, nobody wore seatbelts. So they never, they never even considered wearing seatbelts. This is the reality of the world we live in. Cultural norms, society, dictate our behavior. We do what we do because that's what people do. We drive five mile an hour over the speed limit. Apparently it's not a limit because we drive five mile an hour over. Why do we drive over it? Because that's just what we do. That, that's just what's socially acceptable. So much of what we do. And I mean, there were seatbelts in the car. They started putting seatbelts in cars in the 60s. So what has to happen in our world to change cultural norms? What has to happen? Well, usually it's catastrophe. We need some big explosion or some big pain, something bad to happen usually in order to get people to change their behavior. People weren't going to start wearing seatbelts until enough people died. They needed a wake-up call. So a few years later, I was born. Uh, the first car that I can remember our family driving was this one. That's black. This one, it's a 1984 Burgundy Mercury Grand Marquis. Beautiful car. And you would assume after such a terrible experience, a horrible accident, actually they had another one that I didn't even have time to tell you about in the meantime, you would assume that as a young child, I would be strapped down in the back seat with a seatbelt on, protected, right? No. We go on vacations to grandma's house and I'm laying down in the window seal up in the back. Remember that thing? Or if I wasn't up there, I was usually sitting in the front seat on the armrest. When they had bench seats, they had that armrest that would go down and you'd sit on there. Brian Regan would call it the hump. I was the hump boy driving all the way if we ever got into a wreck, projectile, missile through the windshield into oncoming traffic, like, so next question I have for you, why did my parents hate me? What did I do? What did I do to you, parents? No, nothing was going to change their behavior, apparently, until this happened. Click it or ticket. It made a law. And they realize the only way people are going to wake up and change their behavior is if we make a law. In our lives, this is often what happens. It's like, if I'm ever going to actually lose weight, I'm going to have to make a law. No eating after 7 p.m. If, I, if I'm going to ever start working out, I got to make a law. I'm going to set the alarm. I'm going to force the behavior. This is what happens in our culture. We assume that in order to change culture, we've got to create a law to make it happen. So now we've gone the extreme. We swung the pendulum. If you get in your car without putting your seatbelt on now, that thing will ding at you forever. You shut up. If you don't put your seatbelt on, electric shock up your spine. If you don't put your seatbelt on. Now, if you don't strap your kids into their car seat so tight they can't breathe, you get the death penalty. It's like we swung the pendulum. We went to the opposite extreme because enough people died and enough people said, 
enough is enough. And they started setting up systems to make sure people would take, would change their behavior. And this is what happens in our spiritual lives all the time. I know so many of you who have decided that at some catastrophic time in your life, you hit rock bottom. Maybe it was a divorce or a financial issue or a relationship that broke up or a parenting issue or, or, or some kind of addiction made you hit rock bottom. And you said, okay, I need some answers. I need some solutions. And many of you in that time of life ran to the church. You said, they're offering answers. At least I can go hear them out. catastrophe in your life caused some kind of change. And you begin to realize that maybe you don't have it all together. Or maybe it was somebody woke you up to the fact that you are an eternal being. That, that you will someday spend eternity somewhere and you wanted an answer to the question, where will I spend eternity? And you woke up to the bigger picture of, of life. The reality is when we are living in ignorance, we need a wake-up call. Many of you have heard of the preacher Jonathan Edwards, probably smartest theologian in history. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. When I was reading about him not too long ago, I read that he actually preached 10 times as many sermons on heaven as he did about hell. But the, the sermon we all remember is the sermon on hell. Why? Because it was a wake-up call. The world at the time was living in this bliss, this assumption that everything is good and happy, and he preached a sermon that woke them up to the fact that, no, actually, many of you are going on a destination to a terrible place, and it was a wake-up call. Today's story is a wake-up call. Jesus went overboard. He got a little bit nuts. He went into the temple one day and saw some things that weren't okay. And he started throwing over, turning over tables, scaring off the, all the people who were selling things in the temple, made a whip and scared them out. So it's the audio on this video, it was windy that day, and so the audio is not very good, but here's me at the temple. I am standing outside the temple now. Um, I'm standing on the rock that Jesus would have walked through in order. This used to be a gate. They've since filled it in, but Jesus would have walked through this gate to go into the temple uh, many times. And one of those times, he was very angry about what was going on in the temple, and he decided to do something about it. So I'm in Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the merchants and their customers. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the stalls of those selling doves. He said, the scriptures declare my temple will be called the place of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him and he healed them there in the temple. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the little children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. But they were indignant and asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus. Jesus replied, haven't you read the scriptures? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you, you praise. Then he returned to Bethany, where he stayed overnight. Bethany is just up over that hill, not far from me. 
And this story is not like any other story we read about him. Jesus didn't just act like this. Today, he decided that he was going to act differently in order to bring people's attention to something that desperately need, needed to change. So I'd like to spend uh, our time today answering two questions of this story. The first question is the one that we obviously all ask ourselves is why? Why did Jesus kick over all of these tables? Well, the one that is obvious and the one that we talk about most often is the fact that Jesus was fighting against greed. See, when God set up this Jewish sacrificial system, he required the Jews to sacrifice animals at the temple or originally at the tabernacle. And so as a result, people would travel for all, from all over the country to travel to Jerusalem to perform these sacrificial rituals. And so entrepreneurs recognized an opportunity. They realized if all these people are traveling from all over the place, bringing these animals, what if we just sold them animals once they got here? I mean, we could make some money off this deal, right? And so originally, maybe it started as a benevolent exercise. They were going to help people out. But eventually it got to the point where they were price gouging. And they were making some money off people having to come to Jerusalem and buy these sacrifices, which is not what God intended, right? I mean, even when God set up the sacrificial system, he told them, hey, if you can't afford this kind of animal, then you can use this cheaper kind of animal. He, he was trying to make allowances for people who couldn't afford to make the more expensive sacrifices. And now these, uh, these people are taking advantage of the system that God set up. That's actually what taking the Lord's name in vain is all about. It's about using God for personal gain. It's like a politician trying to get elected by announcing a certain religion, or, or it's like a, somebody trying to sell something by telling you that they're a Christian and you should buy from me because I'm a, I'm a Christian. That's what using the Lord's name in vain is. It's using God's name for personal gain. This is what these people were doing. They were in the temple using God's system as a way to bring glory to or financial gain to or more power to themselves. And so Jesus comes into the temple and he says, you have turned my house into a den of thieves. That's what he said in the story, a den of thieves. But Jesus actually, when he used that phrase den of thieves, he didn't come up with it on the spot. He was actually quoting Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, don't you yourselves admit that this temple, which bears my name, has become a den of thieves? And why did Jeremiah say this when he said it? Jeremiah was predicting the destruction of the temple. He was saying, hey, if you don't get your act together, somebody's going to come in and destroy the temple. And guess what? It happened. Jeremiah's prediction happened. The temple was destroyed as a result of this. So when Jesus quotes Jeremiah, they're like, you're doing it again. This nutso rabbi from Nazareth, is again prophesying that he's going to destroy the temple. Who is this guy? It's no wonder the religious leaders hated him. Get him out of here. And he predicts the destruction of the temple, and guess what? It happened. The second reason that I think Jesus turned over the tables in the temple that day was Jesus was fighting against discrimination. 
My whole life, I've heard people use this story to talk about how you can't sell things in the sanctuary. I don't think that's the point of the story whatsoever. And that's not what Jesus was getting at. Jesus was in the temple, but he wasn't even in the sanctuary at this point. He's in the outer courtyard of the temple. Here's a a diagram of the temple that Jesus would have been in, something like this. And so here's the sanctuary here in the middle, but this is the whole temple mount. And out here, you've got this outer courtyard, which is where Jesus would have been, where they would have set up this shopping mall. And um, do you know who worshiped? It says right here, do you know who worshiped in this outer courtyard? This area was reserved for the Gentiles, everybody who's not a Jew. And so by turning their worshiping space into a shopping mall, what they were doing was trying to exclude those people who were not like them. Those people, it was a racist act. They were trying to remove from people the ability to worship God. They wanted to make it exclusively Jewish. So Jesus calls this a den of thieves, quoting Jeremiah. Then he also said is is meant, meant to house of of. He also did not come up with that phrase. And when he said he calls it a house of prayer, he's actually quoting from Isaiah. And he says, I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem. This is where the temple is. And will fill them with joy in my house of prayer, Isaiah says. So remember, the temple is built on Mount Moriah. What other famous things happen in Mount Moriah? Number one, you've got Abraham going up to sacrifice Isaac on this, on this mountain and, and God stops him and rescues Isaac. Another thing that they say happened on Mount Moriah is where Jacob has this dream and there's angels ascending and descending from heaven. And this is the mountain that they would eventually build the temple on. So this is an important place. So people have to travel from around the world to come to this important mountain, which is now the temple. And then he goes on to say, I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Not for the Jews, not for the rich and wealthy, not for a specific ethnicity or specific people group, for all nations. Jesus did not just come for the Jews. Jesus didn't come for Americans. He is not the American God. Jesus came for all nations. So the second question I want to ask of this story as we recognize Jesus' actions in this temple is as he's angry at the discrimination and angry at the greed, we wonder, did Jesus sin? Is, is anger a sin? This story is one of only two, maybe three, depending on how you interpret interpret it, times in scripture where it describes Jesus as mad, as angry. And each time that Jesus gets angry in the Bible, he is angry at the religious leaders. We always say that Jesus never sinned because he didn't. So him getting angry would, would imply that no, anger itself is not a sin. So when Jesus gets angry, we would call his anger righteous anger. Is anger a sin? No, not if it's righteous anger. Not if you are angry about the things that God is angry about. And we like to label a lot of our anger righteous anger, right? 
Just about anything that we feel angry about, it's easy to just label it righteous anger. But how much of it actually is? How much is actually just frustration with me not getting what I want? How much of it is actually frustration or angry at people who have hurt me or people that I disagree with? The thing that we have to recognize about anger is that often, not always, but often anger breaks relationships. We see this all the time. We see this in marriage counseling. We see this in children dealing with daddy issues. We see this in substance abuse. Anger breaks relationships. And so when you feel the emotion of anger, it is valuable to you to stop, to pause and ask yourself, is this anger worth breaking a relationship? If not, then run from anger. If CNN makes you angry, then stop watching it. If you get angry when you drink, then stop drinking. Run from it. You know what makes you angry. So set up a boundary and say no more. I won't fall into that temptation because I won't put myself in a place to be tempted. When my sons get angry, I always tell them, take a deep breath. Why? It's not because deep breaths are some magical thing that happens that unlocks some mystical. No, it is because it, it causes them to slow down, to pause. Sometimes it can calm our emotions. And when we slow down, we have, a we have time to make a choice. Is this really worth it? Is whatever I'm angry about, is it really worth being angry about? Is it really worth hurting a relationship over? Because in our anger, we become illogical. In our anger, we start saying things that we don't actually think. And sometimes we assume that everybody around us will just move on. But what it ends up doing is bringing negativity into a relationship that just can be a drain on the relationship. That can just cause there to be less joy, less pain. Anger in a relationship breaks relationships. So we stop. We think about the situation. We ask God to renew our minds. We pray and we breathe. The apostle Paul said, in your anger, so you're going to get angry when it happens, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let it control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. In other words, don't stew on it. Don't, don't hold it in. Don't keep thinking about it. Sinful anger happens when someone takes something from us, when somebody hurts us. Sinful anger usually includes a statement like, I deserve, or this is my right, or that's not fair. 
In other words, the root of sinful anger is self-focus. It's all about me. It's about what I deserve. It's about what I want. It's about how you wronged me. It's about how you are wrong. Spiritual maturity reduces anger because it removes focus from self. The more spiritually mature we become, the less we focus on ourselves and the more we focus on others. And when we focus on others, when we are sacrificially thinking about others, then our anger reduces. As we mature spiritually, we set our eyes on things above. And when we do get angry, we get angry about the things that God is angry about. What is God angry about? God is angry about sin because sin hurts people that God loves. God gets angry when we become a barrier to other people worshiping. When my worship preferences and my worship desires and the things that I want to be in our community get in the way of people worshiping, that's what God gets angry about. God gets angry at greed. When I hoard for myself, when I keep for myself the the gifts that God has given me rather than sharing them, rather than living generously, Get angry about the things that God is angry about. Not about how you have been wronged. Get angry when people get in the way of other people worshiping. Get angry when people put themselves before others. Because when I get in the way of others worshiping, or when I fail to become the person that he created me to be, that breaks God's heart. And I'm sinning. So I think it's valuable for in conversations like this, if we will ask ourselves the question, what makes me angry? List it. Like bring to your mind the things that make you angry. And think. When I walk into this situation, I usually get angry. So what should I do before I walk into that situation? Are you angry at the things that God is angry about? I think we have a lot of people in our community and in our world who have anger issues. It is time to take those angers, those frustrations, and lay them on the altar, sacrifice them to God, kill them, stop allowing them to break relationships, take up your cross and follow him. Surrender your desires Surrender your desire for justice. Take up your cross and follow him. Enlisting your anger allows you to walk into a situation fully aware and prepare yourself before you get there. Paul says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish demolish strongholds. Set your mind on things above before you go into a situation that could cause anger. If you work in a job that regularly makes you angry, then you have to think about the relationships that you might hurt if you lose control of that anger. And that requires prayer. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. That requires sacrifice. And Paul says, we demolish arguments, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient 
to Christ. Take captive every thought. We follow our thoughts, but our thoughts can lie to us. They can mislead us. They can cause us to do things that are unwise. Take your angry thoughts captive. It's time to lay them on the altar, sacrifice them to God. God, take control of me. If you are in a situation where anger has caused you to break relationships, can I invite you to humble yourself and go to the person that you hurt in your anger to ask for forgiveness, to confess your sin, to to tell them that you have a desire to do better in the future, that you're not going to be perfect, that you're never going to, that it's not that you're never going to fail again. But to be honest and transparent with what you're wrestling with and then come to God and ask him to change your mind, to renew your mind and allow you to be angry about the things that he is angry about and not about the things that are self-focused. God, I ask you today to help us to live more sacrificially for you and less for ourselves. Mature our faith. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.